And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another live edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where, you know, context is everything. And it used to be said, and it obviously began way back when, with Long John Nebel, who, in part, I have tried to model some aspects of this show, like the theme, which is the David Rose orchestrated version of the theme that um, uh, he used uh, when he signed on every night to his WOR radio show that went, like, for five hours. And when you're a kid, you know, living in New Jersey and you're under the covers with a transistor radio and mom doesn't want you to be up, wants you to be asleep and, you know, order and whatever. With four kids, they had to have order. And you spend a lot of the night listening under the covers to Long John Neville. And you are introduced to a panoply of absolutely amazing, astonishing things that would never happen in daylight type stuff in the middle of the night. And all those unusual anomalies, all those extraordinary reportages, all those amazing stories, up to and including, I mean, Arthur Clarke visited uh, Long John several times. Oh my God, you got to see the videos on YouTube. He was such an egocentric prig in the beginning. And when we became friends, it was really interesting to see how he had kind of transmogrified himself into a much more interesting and, and uh, human-oriented nerd. Uh, he never lost his nerdiness. Uh, we would always have these wonderful exchanges of, you know, what he's done and what I've done when we would meet in various places around the country. Anyway, um, Long John Nebel pioneered this form of delving into the unknown, that crossover between, as as mainstream anchors are now saying over and over and over again, with what's been happening all over the planet, particularly here, um, it's, uh, you know, Earth 1 versus Earth 2, which is really interesting because they're now um, uh, posting all of the old fringe shows, you know, the original out of... Uh, body kind of comparison to Twilight Zone by J.J. Abrams uh, on Fox. Uh, really interesting show, delving now radically into alternative worlds, parallel worlds. It almost feels like, and I'm going to hit it right on the head, that at some point in the past, some point back when, uh, let me pick a date, uh, the election of 20. Um, 16, you know, that November, we somehow shifted timelines. Now, this is not the first time in my own experience with a wide variety of backgrounds and phenomenon and all that, that I've had the suspicion that I've jumped some kind of a timeline. And then, of course, many years later, there came this whole thing about the Mandela effect which is code for, in some realities, <clears throat> Nelson Mandela is still alive. And in other realities, like this one, 
He's not. Anyway, this parallel reality was dealt with very, very deftly and interestingly on this, this show, Fringe. So if you want to catch um, HLN and tape everything, they're rerunning from, you know, the first episodes now again. I think it ran five years. Very illustrative because, again, the things that we used to talk about at night, like a president single-handedly, you know, staging a vast array of treasonous activities to try to hang on to power of the shift between one administration and another. That only occurred in conversations held at like, you know, three o'clock in the morning on the subsequent um, uh, heir to Long John, which was obviously uh, Art Bell. Now, Art Bell religiously, and I use that term kind of tongue-in-cheek, insisted, even though he grew up in New Jersey like I did, that he didn't listen to Art Bell in his formative years and that didn't go on to become the backbone of what he did in mainstream radio and setting records and all that. But his producer, Alan, oh, what was Alan's last name? Alan Corbett. Uh, he admitted to listening to Long John Nebel. And since he was Art's producer, you know, it's kind of like his influences and his background definitely shaped Art into a modern version of Long John Nebel. Well, now we have this show, and I very consciously wanted to do something different when Art conned me into the idea, oh, Oakland, why don't you do a, a show? <clears throat> that was right after uh, I had been kicked off coast, actually in that same time frame. So he offered me his network, because of course you know that uh, Keith Rowland was running really Art's network. And we were off to the races, and it's been that way ever since. And here I am. You know, there are times when it's overwhelming, the burden of trying to be at the edge of these phenomenon, all coming together simultaneously. But there's also this incredibly gratifying feeling that we're doing something of record that will not get lost. <clears throat> and someday... An awful lot of people are going to be listening to what we're presenting, the guests we we uh, invite on, the conversations we're having like tonight, where things of a stunning and stunningly important, never-happened-before historical nature are now not just happening in the dead of night. They're happening in broad daylight. Like what we discussed last week, the first time ever indictment for criminal activity of a former president of the United States. So tonight we have another litany of news and we're going to be kind of going through an awful lot of things that are hitting the fan simultaneously. And they're part of my kind of meta model that we're going through some kind of physics catharsis where... Not only are the good getting better and the bad are getting worse, but that curve is increasing at an exponential rate. And things that we thought would never happen in the real world on Earth-1 are happening almost now on a daily basis on Earth-2. So have we all, or all of us who are listening tonight, have we all made this shift is the shift individual? Is it collective? Is it civilization-wide? Is it huge swaths of populations and nations on the earth? In other words, 
We haven't a clue how this might work, but we have an awful lot of people who are reporting this reality does not feel real. On that note, item number one, we have four more dead and 28 injured in another gun massacre of innocents. Uh, it's now happening like twice a week. We had uh, uh, Tennessee and then we had, you know, Louisville and now we got Louisville again and then we've got Alabama and it goes on and on and on and on because we are the only advanced nation on the planet that has something as insidious as the Second Amendment. So we're going to talk about the Second Amendment a bit tonight. We're going to talk about, of course, the First Amendment. And we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Item number two, Amy Klobuchar, who is a uh, sitting senator, she is on the Senate Judiciary Committee because the Democrats, of course, with their majority, uh, control the committees and control the, the um, committee memberships. <clears throat> she is talking uh, in terms of Clarence Thomas's now disclosed lavish gifts from billionaire GOP donor um, Mr. Crow, Harlan Crow, that has now exceeded anything we could imagine because not only has Crow been lavishing half-million-dollar vacations on the uh, Thomases, both the Justice of the Supreme Court and his wife, <clears throat> but apparently they've also, he also has been funneling money directly to the family, uh, buying uh, Clarence's mother's house, home, where she is still living at the age of 94. And I, I have such mixed feelings about this because it's nice to see that Clarence cares a lot about his mom. It's really bizarre that all he had to do to conform to the law is just admit on paper who bought the house. And in that same year, he admitted other gifts, which are required by the rules, but not the 130-some thousand dollars for his mother's property. And on and on, and it's, it's escalating. And, of course, this is a fundamental, major constitutional crisis. No more, no less. Alongside item number three, which is while all this is hitting the rotating kitchen appliance, we've got the $1.6 billion Dominion versus Fox News suit, the trial, which, no, it's not starting tomorrow. It was supposed to on the 17th start tomorrow, and a few hours ago, the uh, the uh, court announced in, in uh, Delaware that the trial has now been moved to Tuesday, April 18th, and we should get a very interesting overview of how things are going to go even in the first couple of days, but this is really an unprecedented suit based on interpretation and judgment that's what judges do, including Supreme Court justices. They judge based on incomplete evidence. They, they are supposed to objectively fill in the gaps in the law that allow existing black letter law to be fulfilled. And when you see one of the justices display such egregious aberrations and bizarre maljudgments for 20 years, two decades, a generation, you begin to say, well, what is the role of the court in the, you know, uh, checks and balances system of the founders? What is the role 
of a wounded court where one of the members is egregiously in violation, not only of general ethics, but also of black letter law in the U.S. Code. Now, item number four, back to the Supreme Court. In the same time frame that there are all kinds of questions being asked of the court, because they have no enforcement power on their own to judge the Constitution, that depends on the executive branch and the uh, Justice Department, et cetera, et cetera, or on the legislative branch enacting new law that will conform to the Constitution that the court interprets. Well, the only power the court has is the power of persuasion and credibility. When most Americans, which they now have, according to abundant polling, when most Americans do not believe in the objectivity of the current Supreme Court and its rulings, like in the recent Dobbs decision, there is very bad news up ahead for a republic based on three equal and checking branches. Item number five. Last week, we uh, talked about this briefly because it's evidence, again, at the grassroots of uh, a lot of people not wanting to accept the status quo. And in the reddest of red states, uh, Tennessee, where two black lawmakers were thrown out of the state legislature for having the temerity to protest the death of three children and three adults at that school in Nashville. Well, they have now been returned through legal processes, and they are fully filling out their terms as appointed legislators pending two new special elections, which will be held probably sometime in the uh, in the fall. So we come full circle. What did the Republicans do with their cockamamie stunt? All they did from the grassroots level up is make an awful lot of people all over the country and the world realize that politically, where we're basically willing to expel black legislators rather than deal with the real problems raised, again, by item number one tonight, there needs to be substantive change. And so all of these constitutional questions and competitions and direct oppositions are coming to a head in the same time frame that where we could say last week that was the week that was. Well, this week is almost, if not even more, um, uh, determinative, primarily because it is irrevocable now that Clarence Thomas and the third branch of the United States government constituted 246 years ago is not following the rules and is at the point of crisis at several different levels. So we've assembled a panel tonight to kind of kick this around and discuss uh, all kinds of intriguing uh, details of this. I'd like to go to Marvin Jones first, because Marvin Jones is our, as we've said on previous shows, he's our resident citizen historian. He served in the U.S. military, worked in intelligence, um, had secret clearances. He is now retired, yeah, right, <clears throat> and lives in Western Massachusetts. It's his lifelong history and interest in history, however, that strongly continues. So, Marvin, let me turn to you first. How do we get into this pickle? 
What is unclear about the Constitution that allows a chief justice to, for a generation, basically get away with riding on the largesse of a very, very politically curious right-wing donor? First, let me correct something that you said. When I was on active duty, I worked in commo communication. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. That, Details that are important. Yes, yes, yes. Now, as to how we got into uh, this situation, uh, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of background on this because this is how, from my studies, uh, this is a conclusion that, that I have reached. There are several factors that play into it. And the reason why we have this out-of-touch court, and in one of my articles I, I, I called it the Imperial Court, the reason why we have, have it goes back to two elections, the first in 2000 and the second in 2016, both of which involved having a candidate who did not have the popular vote being installed at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, I know that as some people uh, talk about uh, the Electoral College being such a problem, and as it is being used, yes, it is. But what the Electoral College was actually set up to do primarily two things. First, popular choice. Second, national security. Popular choice speaks for itself. The problem at the convention, and Madison uh, pointed this out in the Federalist Papers, was that they could not uh, come to one uniform rule for voting. And so the, the voting... At, as it came out of convention, was based on those who could vote for the most numerous branch of the legislature in each state, so essentially the House of Representatives in each state. And the national security aspect came in through the fact that through Madison's studies getting prepared for the convention, the one thing that stood out for the failure of the ancient republics was foreign influence. And one of the things that the uh, electors were uh, supposed to do, and Hamilton has this, uh, well, I won't, I won't go into the quote, but he, he was pointing out how if the electors found out that there was a problem subsequently uh, uh, to election day, uh, they, they could with better information, go to uh, another choice, as in if someone had uh, been under foreign influence. Uh, because in that uh, a passage by Hamilton, he talked about that that would be the way that a foreign power would like to get its hand on uh, activity here. So I say all of that to say this. Through the fact that we had uh, 
the Supreme Court of the United States installing Bush the Younger in the White House, which in itself was an unconstitutional act. I know I may be stepping on a lot of people's <laughs> toes, but tough, right? The reason why I say that is because on, if I remember the date correctly, July 25th, 1787, James Madison got up before the convention and he reviewed all the, the various methods they had discussed about how they were going to uh, choose the executive. And when he uh, concluded... Well, 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 when you say executive, that, you, you mean the president? The, the, pre the president. Mm -hmm. uh, when he got through with, with uh, all the different uh, methods that they had uh, considered and then the one that they chose, his conclusion was that the president is now going to be chosen by the people. And one method that he said that we definitely... Uh, 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 well, he said it was uh, 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 definitely out of the question. That that was his phrase. Out of the question was that the judiciary would choose the president. Hmm. One of the things that I found very interesting during uh, 2000, uh, when the, uh, the, the the Supreme Court made that uh, decision. Justice Breyer, if I remember correctly, was the one who pointed out that quotation by James Madison. Now, maybe it was just me, but I found it very odd that none of the self-style, quote, mainstream, unquote, press, and again, to me, mainstream means dealing with facts. None of them had that as a uh, major headline in the Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times. The, pro the proper method uh, for choosing a president in a dispute is for it to go to the House of Representatives, right? So anyway, I say all, all, all of that, and of course, we all are more immediately familiar with having Well, wait, you raised this huge question. How did Bush v. Gore in the Supreme Court become law? Well, be because, again, it, it was an imperial court. They just made that uh, assumption of, of power and the elected politicians uh, let it happen. Uh, well, now, wait, wait, wait. I, 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 I thought in order for the court to rule, they could not decide of themselves what they would rule on. They had to wait for a case to be presented. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. Well, it, it, that had been uh, uh, gamed out uh, back with uh, 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 Bush the Younger's, uh, I don't know what his title was, campaign manager, whatever it was. He was one of Bush's people. Uh, that, that had already been gamed out by James Baker, that oh. uh, we, we are ultimately going to get away to have this go before the court. So, But what you're saying happened, is non-trivial because you're saying that Bush v. Gore was decided illegally under the Constitution. Well, yes, that that is is my view, and I'm sure that is decidedly an unpopular view with with some. But for me, when, when I said "so help me God," I meant that, and I, I said that if I'm going to end up getting shot, or stepping on a landmine, or, or or strafed or bombed by an enemy fighter or or something, I'm going to know the reason why I am doing this. 
So I ha- I have uh, studied these things to the best of my ability. That is my conclusion. And so what that allowed was that Bush the Younger got to appoint members to the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Bruce Ackerman of uh, uh, Yale University, he had written a piece Back, back then in the 2000s, sometime early in 2001, uh, he, he said that this set up a situation <laughs> where the, the court was essentially appointing itself, right? Where it was adding, it, was, it, knew, it knew it was going to be adding members who were favorable. So it voted uh, for, in, in terms of the right president that would extend the court in terms of its right-wing philosophy. Right. Right. So so we had that. And then so uh, that's uh, packing the court from within the court with an unconstitutional move, because, you know, before Trump, this should have gone, you're saying, to the House of Representatives back in 2000. Yes, 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 yes. And if it had, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. if it Mm -hmm. had, I believe the Democrats had the majority of congressional districts which is the way that decision is, is, is made in the House. And well, in, in the House for a presidential election, uh, the election is determined by delegation. So each state's delegation right. would, would meet, and it has to be, uh, of course, a... But unlike, unlike the Trump era, where Republicans dominated Democrats by two or three uh, districts, the Democrats in 2000, I think, dominated the House in terms of district, so we would have had Gore. Yeah, most likely, because even a, a, a Republican representative in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, Connie Morella, oh. even, though she was, even though she was a Republican, she had, had made a statement that she would uh, uh, vote for, of course, the, the one who had gotten the majority of the vote in, in her state, which, uh, of course, uh, was the then Vice President Al Gore. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, what a tangled web, because this, of course, then culminates mm-hmm. with Trump's election, again, mm-hmm. with this uh, basically gerrymandered electoral college, and bingo, now we're on Earth 2. And also, and also, the very foreign influence that of the Russians. Was originally concerned with, right? And that uh, Hamilton seconded uh, his, his motion in the Federalist Papers. Right. You know, the Marvin, Russian though, I, 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 you know, like all generals, and we've got a couple of minutes to the bottom of the hour here, all generals, you know, they say the cliche is they, they fight the last war. I'm mm-hmm. not so much certain that the Russians had all that much influence. I think this is a home grown 30% problem, which has been growing like a cancer in the Republic for decades, because some people justifiably have felt put down, ignored, you know, exploited, everything you can imagine at the bottom of society. And they have legitimate grievances about government and their fair share and their, you know, feeling respected and all of that. And they chose, because in part they were manipulated into choosing the wrong guy to be their savior, their you know knight on the white horse. But they're mm-hmm. but they're they're yearning for that kind of redress of grievances 
goes all the way back to Jefferson. It just was never acknowledged even by the Democrats. Okay. Big silence. Okay, just as well, we're at the bottom of the hour. Well, I was trying to give you the break for the, the, the give you the chance to discuss it. Well, we're at the bottom of the hour, so I'll tell you what. We're I'd gonna, like to respond to that. Yeah, one. by all, when, when we come back, okay. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and what we're doing is, uh, I think we're doing it properly here, is we're, we're talking tonight about the all the major crises hitting the constitutional fan who are, in fact, uh, you know, causing parallel lines of confusion and even a very fundamental distrust of the validity of the decisions of the current court, which has only been exasperated now by, by uh, you know, really bizarre um, activities on the part of one of the justices. So... Okay, my switches here do not seem to be functioning properly. Let's see, why is this not working? This is so bizarre. Okay, well, well, oh dear. All right, I'll tell you what, we're going to go directly to our promo. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We, in a very short order, will return. side of midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
Mr. Reiner? I don't know. He had a funny look on his face. He always does. All right, gentlemen. Let's get on with it. Which of us will write our Declaration of Independence? Mr. Adams, I say you should write it. To your legal mind and brilliance we defer. Is that so? Well, if I'm the one to do it, they'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked, you know that, sir. Yes, I know. But I say you should write it. Franklin, yes, you. Hell no. Yes, you, Dr. Franklin. You, but, you, but, you. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night. We seem to be having some problems with one of the computers. Of course. So, anyway, Marvin, um, I had to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, um, well, I was hoping to make. A- oh, Barbara, yes, yes, oh, yes. Yeah, you're right. Let Barbara. Go. Yeah, let, well, let me give Barbara the proper intro, which means I have to switch screens. Okay. I mean, you don't remember it after all this time. There's too much. It's, we need to reduce these to just a couple, three lines. One is she was a former senior policy advisor in the Reagan White House. She has the first degree in paranormal activities, which I which were called hyperdimensional. And she was a member of the Naval War College in Annapolis, writing for many, many years, and has all kinds of interstitial information, which is why she's on the other side of midnight so often, and she has something appropriate for this. Barbara, go for it. Uh- yeah, let me just correct that a little bit. That was the Naval Postgraduate School, not the Naval War College. Okay. Um, See, I'm, so, I'm, I'm so far batting zero tonight. <laughs> okay. This is not good. Mar- Marvin and I are going to correct your intros. That's all right. Okay. Well, seeing as I was in the White House and um, in pretty high-level positions also in the Justice Department, I have a kind of a unique uh, perspective on this. First off, uh, in my opinion also, I'd be interested to hear uh, our attorney on the call here, Mick, Mick Harrison, to also answer this. But it's my opinion, having read it, that Bush v. Gore was, in fact, um, decided illegally that it should never have been taken to the court. I don't believe it's the case that if it had gone to the House, as I believe it should have, that the Democrats would have necessarily won. I'm, I don't believe so. But that needs to be checked. Um, probably the most interesting thing um, about Bush v. Gore is that it was argued by, I can't remember his first name at the moment, but Olson, um, who was who became uh, Bush and Cheney's solicitor general, who argued before the Supreme Court in those cases. And he actually, before um, the election was decided by the Supreme Court, he argued Bush v. Gore on, of course, the Bush side to the Supreme Court. Now, the most important thing about Bush v. Gore, besides having been, in my opinion, should never have been argued. And by the way, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, whom I knew, um, in fact, I I escorted her into the White House for her for her interview with Ronald Reagan, after which she was chosen to be his first Supreme Court nominee and, of course, went on the court. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor, after, she unfortunately voted um, for Bush, the Bush side and Bush v. Gore. And later, she went public saying that she had made a terrible mistake, a terrible mistake, and you can read about her reasons for saying so, which were legal reasons. Um, but the most important thing to me about Bush v. Gore is that when Bush and Cheney took the White House, it wasn't too long after that, as I recall, it was in December, uh, because after they took the White House, 
The New York Times and the Washington Post, it was called the New York Times-Washington Post Consortium of these major news newspapers. And there were some other mainstream media um, plaintiffs as well. Uh, they got uh, they got permission to do something. Uh, they got permission for the votes in Florida to be recounted. And what's fascinating to me is that it should have been banner headlines around the world, but in late November or into December of 2001, it was announced the results of that um, Washington Post, New York Times consortium recount of the votes in Florida showed absolutely hands down that Gore had actually won. So here you have a constitutional crisis on your hands where the whole world knows that basically uh, the two men in the White House are there illegitimately. And the only way for them to stay in the White House, to stay in the White House, had been, in fact, um, to, in, in my very informed opinion, uh, to become complicit in the 9-11 attacks. Because, um, because Bush had said even before he announced running for the presidency for the Republican nomination for the 2000 election, he had said that he was going to be a war president. And if there is a perceived war, you don't change administrations. So there's a direct link in my mind between um, Bush v. Gore and um, the uh, stealing of the election, essentially, uh, by the Republicans uh, and 9-11. So that's the major comment I wanted to make. Hmm. Speaking of 9-11, there is some major new news that I'd like to uh, have you go over so we can have it for background context for the rest of the conversation. Oh, yeah, let's do that. And then it's important for Mick Harrison, who's um, the litigation director of the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm on the board. But I would like to say that we're both here on this program. <laughs> it will in, be a perfect segue. Perfect what? segue. It'll be a perfect segue. Go ahead. Yeah, but uh, I am here, and Mick is, Mick is here also uh, as private citizens on this show. We're not here on behalf of the Lawyers Committee. Um, however, um, if you go to my items, and do you want to tell people how to do that? Yep. <clears throat> you go to our banner, which says the uh, Dominion case tonight with a really cool close-up of the computer doing the vocabulating. They have a really gorgeous logo. That's on the top of the main page, the other side of midnight.com. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the same banner on the guest page, you will see names. Click on Barbara's where it says fast link to items. That will take you to her section of radio pictures. And item number one is the October Surprise History uh, document. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's number one on my screen. Oh, it certainly isn't mine. It's the uh, it, it's the Alan Bean, but but on my screen, number two. What do you have, number two? A uh, bean. No, well, I don't have your number one, so I guess that was added hey, after. Hey, let I me let me refresh. That's always one of the things we. Ought I'm going to gonna refresh too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, my number two. Well, let me just read the title. Then it'll either be number two or number three. DOD lawyers considering U.S. Yeah. inside job. Yeah, that's now number two. It's, it's my my bad, guys. My bad. Okay, I think you were looking at an older one. Yep. Uh, okay, so anyway, for tonight's show, under my items, number two, and later in the show, we'll go back to number one. Uh, but number two, 
DOD lawyers are considering. Now, these are basically public defender lawyers from the Pentagon, from the Department of Defense. DOD attorneys are considering what is essentially a U.S. complicity or U.S. inside job defense for, believe it or not, the 9-11 mastermind, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and the other uh, alleged 9-11 conspirators called the 9-11-5 together as their defense in Guantanamo if the 9-11-5 case does finally go to a military tribunal. Now, this is huge news. Well, this means they're saying they were henchmen of the U.S. government to do this. Well, we don't know what they're going to argue yet. Uh, what? L- let me just say that um, that this is an interview uh, with Tony Schaefer, former Army Colonel Tom, uh, Tony Schaefer, Anthony Tony Schaefer, who revealed in a public interview to over a million people in a podcast only four days ago on, on uh, April 12th. He revealed that he, Tony Schaefer, I'll tell you who he was in a minute, why he's so important for 9-11, that he revealed that he has been approached, he claims, that he's been approached by the defense team, somebody in the defense team for the 9-11-5 as a potential defense witness if it goes to tribunal, if it goes to trial. Now, it may not go to trial, but they have to build their defense strategy and and, uh, get their documents together and such in advance. So he's been contacted. Now, why is this important? It's important because of who Tony Schaefer is. Uh, Colonel Anthony Tony Schaefer, before 9-11, beginning in the year 2000, over a year before 9-11, he was the lead, he was the director, the head, whatever you want to call it, of a special DOD, Pentagon Special Operations Command Task Force, whose special mission not in the intelligence community, but in the military, in the Pentagon, to identify and track any terrorists in the United States, or anywhere in the world for that matter. And they not only identified, but were tracking and surveilling two of the three so-called terrorist operative cells in the United States, beginning in January of 2000, who later would become the alleged 9-11 hijackers. So they were tracking these people inside the United States while they were taking flight training in Florida, up in New York, uh, out of Essex, uh, the old Essex uh, airfield there, and also uh, in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City, and many, many other places, also in Arizona, near uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. So he was, the, the DOD, Special Operations Command, was tracking the hijackers for at least a year and a quarter to a year and a half before 9-11. So what's really important about this new revelation by Anthony Schaefer four days ago online you can there the link there is for you to watch the video yep. and the part that's important starts at 14 minutes in and goes to the end so it's very important to watch this you'll get a feel for who Tony Schaefer is I don't believe he's any longer in the military he might be you know he might be in the reserves or something but anyway um, what's important is that when Tony Schaefer is asked and he did he was asked this in a congressional hearing years ago, and he still says it to this day, when he's asked, well, if you were tracking all these alleged, I had alleged hijackers before 9-11, how come it happened? 
Why weren't they stopped? And his answer for years has, including to Congress under oath, his answer has always been, well, we tried to alert the FBI, which is the only U.S. government agency who had the jurisdiction to stop them, to arrest them, etc. That we able danger DOD was not allowed to. Our superiors, he claims, the DOD attorneys were being nitpicking about the letter of the law and wouldn't let them do it. Now, this is an actual lie. There is voluminous evidence, not only that the FBI knew, but that the very highest levels of the FBI were complicit in ensuring that the alleged hijackers were not arrested in advance. So anyway, um, this is just this has just gone forward. And my my item number three, it's very important because it is an affidavit that I've personally done um, or asked for by a very important 9-11 witness named Francis Gregory Ford. He goes by Greg Ford. And you can read this. It's a sworn jurid affidavit, notarized, uh, sworn under oath where you raise your hand under penalty of perjury. He says that he will say this to a court or a grand jury or a congressional hearing, raising his hand under penalty of perjury. So this should be taken very seriously. And in this affidavit, Greg Ford says that he was in a counterterrorism training class. And remember that able danger, this DOD, you know, alleged 9-11 hijacker tracking operation before 9-11 was uh, was a counterterrorism operation. Uh, Greg Ford, in July of 2000, now you're talking about what to do the math, not about July, August, September. That's about, what, uh, 14 months before 9-11 that Greg Ford was one of about 35 members of a counterterrorism training course at, at the Army Fort Washuka, Arizona, which is an Army training center. When the head of Fort Huachuca, the chief operating uh, commanding officer, came in and said, we have a, we have a surprise for you. We're going to have three um, outside briefers brief you today. They're from Able Danger. And Tony Schaefer was the lead. And there were two others, I don't know their names, and Greg Ford doesn't remember their names, I believe. But anyway, he remembers Tony Schaefer very well because he was interested in the beginning. And Tony Schaefer did most of the talking. This is all in the affidavit. And the bottom line is, Schaefer and his, one of the two other briefers, told the class, including Greg Ford, 14 months before 9-11, that they were tracking these operative uh, terrorist operate, operative cells within the U.S. that were doing flight training in the U.S. And here's the clincher, that within the next 18 months, and in fact it happened 14 months later on 9-11, that within the next 18 months at the outside, they will hijack commercial airlines and crash them into the World Trade Center tower and, quote, select targets in Washington, D.C., unquote, and when they do, because this will happen, not that it might, not that they have a plot, not that from their surveillance they might do it, but that they will do it. And when they do do it, all of you 35 or so people in the class, you better get your wills together because you're going to be sent to Iraq. Hmm. Now, Tony Schaefer's what's called... Well, what wait, wait, isn't, this, isn't this the plan of the new American century? 
Of course it is. Yes, it's the Project for New American Century um, manifesto document written, not coincidentally in my mind, exactly. It was published exactly a year before 9-11. Which which included such luminaries as uh, the Secretary of Defense, Rumsfeld. Oh, yes, Rumsfeld and and, uh, in my... In my 9-11 documentary online called uh, Behind the Smoke Curtain, which focuses on the Pentagon attack, but in the beginning, it goes into um, all of the dozens and dozens and dozens of signatories and principals uh, who signed onto the Project for New American Sensory Manifesto a year before 9-11, calling for a new Pearl Harbor, a catastrophic attack that would enable a... New World Order, an American New World Order. An American Crystal Knocked. An American, well, yeah, there's a way to think about that, because the Pentagon attack was a, was a lot like, uh, you know, the Reichstag fire. And the, uh, the Patriot Act was a lot like the Enabling Act yep. that yep. Hitler used, uh, uh, put into effect immediately under the pretext that communists had attacked the, the, Reichs, the Reichstag. Mm. So, so anyway, the important thing here... There are, two, there are two things that are linked together here, and then I've got one other, uh, both 9-11 related, big time. And um, Well, wait, wait, before you move on, have you guys in the Lawyers Committee aggressively gone after this Tony, uh, what's his name, and gotten before some kind of a grand jury? I don't think, that, I don't think we should answer about the Lawyers Committee. We're here as individuals. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that to Mick, who's our litigation director, to answer if, if he chooses to. Um, but I'm, I've done these, I've done this, um, this Greg Ford uh, affidavit as a, as a private investigator, and I've shared it with the Lawyers Committee. But I'm, I'm not on this program representing the Lawyers Committee or my position with it. Um, the, the important thing linked here is we just had the head of Able Danger come out saying that he's been approached by the DOD lawyers who are the defense attorneys for the 9-11-5, including the alleged mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Mohammed, this is just four days ago, saying that he's been approached to be a defense witness if it goes to trial in Guantanamo, and that the currently uh, being developed defense for the 9-11-5 alleged masterminds of 9-11 uh, is U.S. government complicity. Wow. And yet, this same Tony Schaefer leaves out that he knew, or at least he told that course 14 months before 9-11 at Fort Huachuca, he told them that it was going to happen. So how the hell did Tony Schaefer know that? Why isn't he mentioning that four days ago? Okay, and the last thing is my item number four. And um, this is... It's a recently court-filed, um, rather explosive declaration by a man by the name of Donald Canestrero, who is an investigator, again, for guess what, uh, the Office of Military Commissions, which is part of DOD's Military Commission's Defense Organization, which provides, here we go again, the defense attorney for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and the 9-11-5 at Guantanamo. And you are going to want to read this declaration. Um and then also in my item number four under that is the there's a link to the declaration. And then um, under that, uh, also in a, my item number four, is a link to 
uh, the main article on the subject by the Florida Bulldog, which is a newspaper that literally, you know, uh, they're never going to give up on the, on 9-11 truth. The Florida Bulldog is probably the only major paper in the country mm. that is really serious about 9-11 truth and has been from the beginning. Never given up. And the uh, title of this article is that talks about the declaration. So read that first. Ex-FBI agents, including... Donald Canestrero, accused top CIA FBI officials of a 9-11 cover-up, saying that the CIA used the Saudis and others for their own CIA, and perhaps also FBI, but mostly CIA illegal domestic spying operations. The law, federal law, does not allow the CIA to do anything in the United States, no. but they do. Okay. So those are those are my items that link to 9/11. So maybe we could bring in Mick for. I was just going to say Mick is going to be next on my radar because we are very fortunate tonight to have uh, Mick Harrison, who is co-founder of the Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry. He is a member of the board, executive director, directs and conducts the organization's litigation strategies. He is also an experienced public interest plaintiff's attorney with a national practice focused on whistleblower protection, government oversight and accountability, and environmental protection. Well, as the only guy here, Mick, um, welcome to back to the other side of midnight, as the only guy who admits publicly to being a lawyer, <laughs> um, what I wanted to curse tonight about was how all of these simultaneous constitutional crises, and I look at the Fox Dominion suit as a crisis, but in a very weird kind of positive light, because if Dominion wins, and in essence they've already won in pretrial rulings, so we're now arguing about the amount of money and the, the malice and, and you know that, and with all these emails, and text from inside, which have been released in pretrial motions, we've got a pretty good uh, feel for how this is going to really go against Fox. And the lawyers today apparently tried to write a 65-page brief quelling the, the Judge Davis's real disgust and, and anger at the Fox lawyers apparently retaining crucial evidence that should have been shared with Dominion in discovery. If this does go against Fox, if, if the Dominion people win their libel suit, what do you see, Mick, as the ultimate legal ramifications for all kinds of other big media and even people like individual bloggers to somehow serve their public with the truth? Pretty good question, Richard. Let me just note that when I answer it, I'll be wearing my second hat, <laughs> a public interest plaintiff's lawyer. Okay. Hat, not 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 speaking for the lawyers committee, but if you want to ask me later the question that Barb deferred uh, regarding uh, Colonel Schaefer and the lawyers committee, uh, I can give you a short answer to that wearing my other hat. But um, this question about the Dominion lawsuit, if Dominion wins, it's sort of a double-edged sword, and it, it's going. And and what kind of a sword it becomes judicially will depend on the exact wording of the final decision. And I think we can all predict that final decision probably will not be uh, the trial court's decision, but probably will be two or three levels of appeal up. Po possibly, 
U.S. Supreme Court because of the constitutional issue. Well, wouldn't it inevitably wind up in the court? Probably. I mean, really? Uh, it would, I mean, you, you can always get a settlement. Uh, they don't. Neither I mean, party you know, wants to settle for very good, interesting reasons. Like we're really getting what the legal system, as I've understood it in my professional life, is supposed to be accountability, a contest, equally matched players, equally matched investigation, equally matched expertise in the law. And the fact that this trial is taking place and Fox did not choose the easy way out, because $1.6 billion really to Fox, it's like chump change. It's not trivial, but it's not, you know, the house coming down. So why are they going to trial and why is well, Dominion going? Go I, ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, well, your questions are good ones, Richard. Um, I think both sides have a certain level of confidence in their ability to win. Uh, Fox is likely concerned about a change in the law. Um, I mean, they that concern cuts both ways. If they were to lose the suit, then they're going to have to live by whatever that rule is that's set in this case about, you know, restrictions on the press. And since uh, New York Times versus Sullivan back in 64, whenever it was, Supreme Court made that precedent setting decision, which actually recognized even longer history that essentially First Amendment rights in this country are have been held pretty sacred by the courts for good reason. And that includes the rights of freedom of the press. And so the courts have been reluctant to, to limit what the press says, particularly in terms of, uh, you know, defamation and damages, uh, liability for saying something embarrassing about a public official. Normally and historically the press has gotten by with that. And Fox is the extreme example. I, I think it's fairly safe to say, and and they've been challenged on it now by Dominion. They've gotten by with it for a long time regarding other parties, and this is uh, you know the time they've been called on it. Dominion has the resources to call them on it. So Fox has a reason to settle, I think, because if they settle, they won't get a change in the existing legal precedent. But if they litigate it to a conclusion, they risk getting a change in the existing legal precedent. And I think what that change is likely to be is a refinement of and a clarification of the rule about when you actually can get damages from a news agency when they when they knowingly put out false information, you know, that uh, what you referenced, the uh, the legal standard where you you know the the uh, information is false or you act in reckless disregard of it. Hmm. I just seem, you know, think just from my own experience at the uh, at one of the major networks at CBS where I got to see the inner workings um, that there's nothing trivial about this suit, and we've never had the interior CAT scan of all these texts and emails and correspondences and all that. Well, I'll tell you what, let's hold it right there. My guests this morning are uh, Mick Harrison and Barbara Honiger and Robert Morningstar is with us. He'll come on soon. And Marvin Jones. And we're talking this morning about all of these constitutional crises, which have kind of hit the fan simultaneous to the revelation that in fact, 
there is some fundamental, fundamental problem with the court itself in the terms of uh, Clarence Thomas avoiding legal disclosures that would reveal background influences on the court. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>